Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. How are you? Welcome to the program. This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I am your host. I'm in Los Angeles. Thank you for listening wherever you are. I hope you're doing okay. And I hope you will subscribe to the program wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. And don't forget to sign up for my email newsletter over at otherppl.com. Once a week, it's free. So my guest today is Jasmine Iolani Hakes, author of the debut novel entitled Hula. There wasn't any really kind of cultural rule book that I could follow for the protocol of how to launch a book like this, or not that I know of anyway. And so it was just kind of feeling my way in the dark and trying my hardest to remember all that I've been taught and all of uh, what I know of my home and and having this add to the efforts to make our home a, a vibrant, viable place that is honored and respected and understood. All right, that was Jasmine Iolani Hakes. Her debut novel is called Hula available now in a beautiful hardcover edition from Harper Via. Hula is a sweeping family saga. It is a story about tradition, dance, identity, culture, history, destiny. And ultimately, it is a story about family and women in particular. Three generations of women in Hawaii. It's a story about mothers and daughters. It is set in the town of Hilo on the Big Island, and it centers on a young girl named Hii, who is part of the Naupaka family, which has a storied legacy on the island and in Hilo. 
and is renowned for its contributions to the hula tradition. But there are mysteries to sort out regarding Hii's identity. She doesn't know her father or who he is. Her mother has not told her. There are family divisions and tensions. And in hula dancing, Hii sees an opportunity to heal her family and to find her identity and to carry on the legacy of the Naupakas by winning the next Miss Aloha Hula competition. In this book, Jasmine Iolani Hakes has written a novel about Hawaii for Hawaiians, centering the culture and the experiences and the language and the traditions of Native Hawaiians in the story. It's a novel that grapples with the majestic and often tragic history of Hawaii. It's a novel that draws upon Hawaiian cosmology and mythology and history. It is a novel that captures the grandeur and the overwhelming beauty of the Hawaiian islands. And it is a novel that really delivers the humanity and the complexity and the ferocity in the best possible sense of that term of the Hawaiian people. Jasmine Iolani Hakes was born and raised in Hilo. Her essays have appeared in the Los Angeles Times and the Sacramento Bee. She is the recipient of the Best Fiction Award from the Southern California Writers Conference, and she is herself a hula dancer. Dance has always been central to who she is. She took her first hula class when she was four years old and worked throughout college as a professional luau dancer. It is great to catch her here at the outset of her publishing career as she makes this fine debut, a debut that she had to work really hard for. You're going to hear us talk about its road to publication. Very pleased to have her here on the show and to get to share the conversation with you all right now. So here we go. This is Jasmine Iolani Hakes, and her debut novel, One More Time, is called Hula. I want to say it began with birth because of what I look like, you know, and and that always made me self-conscious about where I belonged and where I fit in my town. I come from a very local family. My mom looks very, very local. Most of my family does. And my, my looks were always something to comment on, you know, so there was always kind of a, uh, is she a tourist? You know, what is she doing here? And so I, I got used to introducing myself and giving my context to everybody and feeling very self-conscious about all of that. And my looks just kind of it, that evolved into a whole identity crisis. And then later, um, having, I, I married into a very large sprawling native Hawaiian family. And I had always, my understanding of what blood quantum was basically, I mean, I grew up in a time in Hilo that you didn't really have a lot of Hawaiian history being taught in public school. We spent one day on it. This is the day that Hawaii became a state, you know, nothing else. And so what I understood of of what being a native Hawaiian meant, what I understood was you check a box when they give you the paper at the beginning of school. And that means you have a chance to go to Kamehameha schools, which were superior at that time, probably still are, I'm not sure, of uh, most of the public school options. And if you had enough... Hawaiian, you could qualify for Hawaiian homelands. 
if you didn't have either one of those things, that was basic. That was basically all I knew because most of the community are they are so mixed, right? It, it, the Hawaiian Kingdom at a time was mixed because of the sugarcane era. You know, it was very labor intensive, so people from around the world came to the kingdom to work in the sugarcane kind of world, and that's why. I'm Filipino, Puerto Rican, Portuguese, you know, all of these, these groups migrated to Hawaii to work in that time. So the kingdom itself was fairly cosmopolitan. And so you have a lot of mixes. And so I was more self-conscious about being white versus being native Hawaiian and being not native Hawaiian. And, And it was only with the evolution of like the kingdom, uh, kingdom talk in the nineties be- and in the eighties became something of a, of an, uh, a reason to go back and look at the definitions of who belongs and who gets to say. And so I kind of, because of my young upbringing, you know, m- my young kind of questions about this anyway, I paid attention to it and took it very personally. Are they saying for me to go home? And if, if, if that, if they're saying that, then where, where is home and who are they? You know, a lot of those people were my cousins and my aunties and people I grew up with that were, were protesting certain things. And so marrying into fast forward a few years and marrying into this Hawaiian family and then having a daughter who's native Hawaiian, I kind of, it was a relief to me in just in the sense of like, she won't have those questions or that ambiguity that I did, right? It's a certain thing. She has this on her birth certificate. Not that she might want to take advantage of the resources available to her because of it, but simply she'll know who she is. She can say she's this and that versus me. I come with a whole, a whole dissertation, you know, (laughs) and then, you know, fast forward a few more years, divorce, I remarried, I have another child and she doesn't have native Hawaiian. And because I was already sensitive to it and I, I left the islands, I just, I was frustrated with, with my role there culturally. I, I didn't know how to contribute to my home and having my two daughters side by side and, and sometimes having family call me and say, you know, your eldest needs to come home. She needs to be with the Aina. She needs to do this and this. And I had such a visceral reaction to that of, of, of like, well, what about my other daughter? <laughs> you know, don't treat them separately. Not that I want my other daughter to be treated as a native Hawaiian, but does my other daughter have a connection and a responsibility to Hawaii? And it was basically my questioning all over again. So I think this book, you know, while I never really wanted to write about all that terrified me and all my vulnerabilities, when I set out to write a book about my home, that to me was the truth of it. And, and it was a, it was a framework that I think exemplified how complicated and nuanced contemporary Hawaii is, you know? So this is a very long answer to your question, but I think, you know, all of my own personal feelings and relationship with having blood versus not having blood I've lived it. My children have lived it. And so this was my way of, of trying to maybe explore that and voice the questions that maybe everyone will have an, a different answer to, but I certainly don't have the answer to. You know. 
Well, and obviously this novel also has a lot to do with Hula or Hula is both very important to the characters that you're working with here. It's also very important to the place and important to you personally. You danced Hula as a young girl and up and I think through college, right? Didn't you pay your way through college, I, at least partially with like Tahitian hula dancing? Yes. <laughs> those luau's. I'm in a lot of honeymoon pictures, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I got to say reading this novel made me think to myself, like, is it okay to, like, I feel bad going to Hawaii and staying at a hotel. They just, these people just resent you. They're just like, get out of here. We're, you know, and I think so many tourists, like their context for a hula dance is at a hotel with like yeah. the tiki torches burning and the waves in the background and everyone feeling they're having a special moment. And I can't help but think like, wow, these luau dancers in their heads are probably like, losers. <laughs> well, I mean, and I think I think that's another aspect of why I wrote what I wrote and how that story came to be. I, you know, when I first started dancing hula, I danced for a very traditional, very beloved halal that they're not performative at all, or they weren't at that time. Now they've evolved into, they do a lot of education and, and they have a foundation and uh, it's a lot of cultural work and preservation. But at that time, I was taught in the way that they had been taught and their mothers had been taught and all the way down the line of, we pass on these chants, we pass on these ways, we pass on these, these uh, certain traditions because that's the only way they're going to survive, you know? And I really internalized that of, of here's how we're going to go and we're going to gather this and we're going to boil it down and that's how we're going to dye this fabric. And, you know, and then getting older and feeling self-conscious because I didn't, my Iolani, I'm named after a very beloved icon of hula, Iolani Luahine. And I always felt kind of the weight of that, like, what is my kuleana? What is my responsibility to that name? Um, and and being not native, you know, and and not really having like a guidebook of where I belong and and who will give me the rules to follow. And um, and then you know, getting older and then going into such a different field of a production company and dancing not just Hawaiian, but Tahitian and, you know, all these different dances and you're invisible, you know, you're on a stage and everybody's clapping and you're giving them what you know they are expecting, you know, just something silly and, and you see them coming up and standing in line and taking a picture with me. I mean, I booked jobs that were photo op, you know, and I'm just standing there because they want to stand next to somebody in the costumes and and it was a different kind of invisible so i think that was one of that those internalized things of we're here you know um and when i say we i mean when for me the we of hilo and of this book was it was everybody in in hilo as well as the aina itself as well as the gods and goddesses and our mythology and our belief system it was all the ancestors everybody that exists in this world that I come from, you know, I used to, when my daughter was a baby, go down to the beach and sit there. And all of a sudden a tour bus would come, the beach would flood with tourists. 
they, they, there would be a smattering of pictures being taken and they'd take pictures of, of me and, and my daughter and without saying a word. And then 30 seconds later, they're all gone. Nobody's touched the water. Nobody said hello, you know? And, and so there was just a, you don't, you're not seeing me. I'm just kind of part of the landscape. And, and that has been, there's so many instances of that, not just for me, just, you know, uh, the wider aspect of that. And so I didn't know really the context. I knew the feelings of the frustrations and everything like that. And it wasn't until I wrote this that I felt I needed to understand the history and, and all the ways blood quantum and the things that I've, I've just kind of as a child, just inherently pushed against because it was a sensitive issue to understand it in a way that wasn't personal, this book kind of allowed me to explore that a bit. And when you refer to blood quantum for people listening, can you just explain that a little bit more so people sure. know? Yeah. So um, blood quantum was an introduced concept by America when they they um, took over the Hawaiian kingdom to... I mean, there were other aspects of, of blood quantum, but one of the best that I, I guess I can kind of point to was uh, 1921, I believe, the Hawaiian Homestead Act, which was, you know, America didn't want to be seen as a colonizer anymore. They were going to, quote unquote, give back some of the land that was stolen during the, the occupation of Hawaii, all the crown lands and all the land of the people because they had a different uh, land use and land ownership system that they were going to, quote unquote, give it back because Hawaiians were dying off. I mean, exponentially. And everyone just, the consensus was we need, Hawaiians need their land and the land needs Hawaiians, you know. And so we're going to put Hawaiians back on the land. But the first thing they did was disqualify all the good you know, land that was good for agriculture, all the land that had water on it, all the land that could be developed for prominent housing, you know, developments. And uh, so you reduce all the the land that you're going to say is for these Hawaiians, but you also don't want to give to everybody that says they're Hawaiian. So the creators of this, this act said, well, the Hawaiians, and it's very cringy to say this, but this was in the the, di- the discussion of the development of the, the kind of the bylaws. It was basically, if a Hawaiian has enough white in them, if they've married an Englishman or, you know, or, or the if they have children from, you know, missionaries and everything like that, they are well equipped with the blood to, you know, to do well. It's the Hawaiians that that don't have that, that need help because they don't have, I don't know what the implications were of having acumen or whatever it has. So they instituted a 50% blood quantum, which was basically saying you're at least half Hawaiian. And this is the definition of how we're defining a Hawaiian. America wrote that out and, and said, okay, well, and so now we're going to institute this. The saddest implication of that is that you have an end date where there will only, it, it, it immediately makes the population finite and then it's just subtractive from there, right? A couple generations later, you're not going to have anybody that qualifies for that land. 
And I, I believe that was intentional. And especially with my research that has backed that up. And so it was a scary thing to write, but I do think it's an, it's a conversation that needs to be had. People need to know about these things because it's a, it's a ticking clock, you know? Mm. Well, I, mean, I got to say blood quantum sounds sort of like, like a James Bond movie with, uh, Elizabeth <laughs> Holmes as so. the villain. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and I, I think so. you, I think you write too, that the way things are going with this policy in place that because of, uh, you know, the, the, like, like, what do you call it? Like cultural intermarrying and all this, you know, all that sort of thing. There will only be native Hawaiians in the islands until 2044 or something. Like you say, it's finite. That they will qualify in under the American, American definition of what a Hawaiian is. Yeah. Right. You know, right. there's, there's a, a projected date, which is horrifying because that doesn't, it's not that far from now. I know. That's what I was thinking. I was like, Oh, that's so sad. You know, yeah. that's so sad. But this book, it's very much about the question of what it means to be a Hawaiian and to have a claim on that place or really any place. I mean, that's what it evoked for me anyway. Like who, like I think about this just as like a, an American mainlander. This is clearly not my land. We're sitting here on Tonga or Tongva land, right? In Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And you start to think like, where do I even belong? Like, I'm just like in the way. <laughs> yeah. I like, mean, and that for me, and I guess that's why it was so scary, but I didn't know how to write a love letter to my home without being completely like touching that, you know, that exact soft spot of mine. And, and so for me, I couldn't explore what it is to be a Hawaiian, right? I, I could, I could explore what it is to be a product of Hawaii's history and to have a family that has been so proud of its contributions to Hawaii and has called it home for since the 1800s. And I mean, my grandpa would always say we were Hawaiian at a time. It wasn't advantageous to put it on your birth certificate and yada, yada, yada. So we're Hawaiian. We just can't say we are. And, you know, and so it always kind of, to me, it, it was, it was more an exploration of what is home and, and, and what does that mean? You know, I mean, if we're just talking about my personal you know, how I kind of saw it because I couldn't take the liberties to say, what is it to be a Hawaiian? And that's why he, her, her blood breakdown is very ambiguous. And, and we, I mean, I think people will kind of have agreements or disagreements about exactly what she is. And as far as blood goes, and that was on purpose, it was to say, well, where does she belong? If, if she doesn't have that qualification on her birth certificate, if she doesn't meet America's definition of that, is this home? Not that does this place belong to her, but does she belong to it? So it's a slight difference, but but I guess to me, I have to hold on to that one because it's it's still so real, you know, for my family. That's that's what we grapple with every day. And when you talk about he he is the character at the heart of your novel. Yes, it's uh. It's Hii and then her mother, Laka, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yes. And Hii, I think, is in many ways kind of the the you. I mean, the things that we've been discussing because she's born, she's fair-skinned, a redhead, green eyes, and the family is sort of like 
this isn't a this isn't yeah. a Hawaiian ch child. Very you know, much so. so. I mean, and I actually thought when I first started it that it was going to be one of those like auto fiction, you know. And he turns out to be very much her own person. So it, while the origins of me wanting to write about a girl like he, yeah, you know, I didn't really expect her to just kind of take take life, you know, and say, no, this is where I'm going with this. So she has a lot less in common with me than I had originally thought, it, you know, she would. <laughs> and this book, I mean, this book really covers a lot of ground time-wise. It spans generations. It goes deep into this family's history. And as an extension of that, it gets into Hawaiian history, Hawaiian cosmology. At the heart of it, again, is hula. And in a very, in a way that really touched me, like you have Hii, who I think has a deep sense of like the mystery of her existence, shall we say, and this feeling of maybe not quite fitting into the family into which she was born or into the place where she lives and believing that if she can master hula as her mother Laka uh, did in her youth as Miss Aloha Hula, right? Is that what it's mm -hmm. called? Yes. Yeah. Her mother is like an, a, a hula champion, essentially. Basically. If that's a way, if that's a way of putting it. <laughs> and so he is, is trying to master hula, which again, with a kind of tourist understanding of hula, grueling to learn, yes. uh, physically demanding. Uh, the um, Oh God, I'm going to forget the word. What's the name of the teacher of hula? Uh, Kumu. The Kumu. You're at a halal yes. with the Kumu teaching you and it's sort of like boot camp. I mean, it's not, oh, <laughs> this is not and, like fun and games. I mean, and culturally, you know, I mean, if you come home and and your mom says you got to do this this weekend, you say no. Kumu said I got to do this. Your mom doesn't say anything. Teachers, same thing. You know, in school, it's kind of just this unknown. Kumu has say. <laughs> what Kumu says goes. If your Kumu wow. is giving you orders, then everybody else will just kind of back off. You know. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. It's a, and it's a sacred right to be taught hula. In Hawaiian culture, like, do, do can any young woman try this, or do you have to be picked? Um, like well, it, I think it really depends on the halal. I know that for most of the halals that I know of, they do have an open enrollment. the The priority is to teach this art, and to and not just this art, but this way of life and this way of uh, um, communicating with the land and being stewards of it because so many of these lessons were embedded in these chants and these dances and this mo'olelo, these stories. And so I, I think usually you, you know, you try it when you're young or when you choose to do it as somebody who's older and coming to it as an adult or whatever. And you talk to your kumu. I mean, you talk to the head of that halal and you try it out and there are many stages to becoming a master of it that that I am not. I am, and that takes it can take your whole life to and be, be completely dedicated to hula to be able to be deigned a kumu, and that is a very big undertaking. And and so I'm not sure exactly of how halals have have developed a protocol to 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 kind of graduate a student to being a master, you know, or a student to teacher. But I do know that it's a very big 
responsibility and uh, it's taken very, very seriously. And so when, when, you know, ironic, I mean, I didn't do any of the easy things, right? Uh, just write about something vague. When I did this, I, I, I felt like Hula was such a way that I have connected and, and what was a way for me to explain or, or kind of give you a picture of the, the cultural responsibility and the cultural priority of keeping these things alive um, versus the politics of, of self-determination and, and, and identity. But um, within Hula, you know, I'm, I'm not going to give you any of it because I felt uncomfortable even pretending, you know, to write some choreography or something like that. And so we had to find a way to navigate around the teaching you about hula or giving you any assumption whatsoever that I was some kind of of master that I can illuminate certain things for you. All I could do was kind of emanate the feeling of what that is to be part of something bigger than yourself. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, and it should be said too. I mean, it's obviously a rit- there's a ritualistic aspect to it, ceremonial, but uh, and also, you know, it's obviously movement, it's dance, it's also narrative. This is a storytelling medium, or uh, I guess this is a yeah. way for Hawaiians to pass down stories about who they are and what they believe and stories about Hawaiian cosmology, right? Very, I mean, basically, I mean, think about Greeks and Romans. It was epic poetry, you know, that's how you you captured history. And then that's before we could write these things down. That's how they 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 lived was you tell the story. And so these stories and these hulas are very much that. That's why they, they talk about gods and goddesses and myths and, and legends. But they also talk about, uh, 
volcanic events and the mist and how that came to be and why this ocean does this and what what these fish do you know it's it's knowledge yeah yeah it's like really i mean i found it kind of poignant like to be reading a novel about a culture that's kind of fighting to survive yeah and to be reminded of the critical importance of narrative and storytelling to the survival of any people, any group of people or culture. If you can't tell these stories, if nobody knows these stories, then, and if nobody exactly. knows this, if nobody knows this language. Well, and, and I grew up, yeah. I mean, I grew up in a, it's such an interesting time, you know, the eighties and nineties were no one. I, I had one cousin when I say cousin, friend, cousin, it's all the families that are, you know, intermeshed and everything there was only one that he, when he had to call home or something to his mom, he would speak Olelo, he would speak Hawaiian. And that was, and everybody would kind of hush to just listen to him because no one spoke Hawaiian, not fluently. You know, you had pigeon, which is my, I guess, first language. And, um, and what, and what is, what, what do you mean by pigeon? Just so people listening pigeon it's it's kind of the mixed plate the the linguistic mixed plate you know it it's it's the portuguese and the the filipino and the the japanese and the chinese and all of these it's a creole it's a dialect you know and and every island has a slightly nuanced difference so if you're local you can kind of tell oh that guy's from maui that guy's from you know honolulu they're they're nuanced but it very much is its own language it has its own inflections and meanings and so it, it was interesting to write it in pidgin and i did that very deliberately pidgin was something that was you were very shamed if you spoke it to a certain extent, there's still a lot of discrimination. You're just assumed to be illiterate or or not educated, unrefined. You know, my mom was very shamed. Generations before her were very shamed for for not speaking, you know, English, English. And so my mom was very strict about no pigeon in the house, you know, and I, I mean, it was a constant battle because she felt like it was going to be a, a handicap, a disadvantage. And there has been a renaissance that I've tried to, to highlight the coming of and the evolution of in Hula, but going back to being Olelo, that all started in the 80s and 70s, 80s and 90s, that cultural revolution and renaissance was very much tied to the language itself because you had to have a group of people come together and say, we're going to create a curriculum like on paper. It can't just be passed down through songs and hulas. We're going to create a curriculum on paper that actually teaches our youth the language. And, and Hilo was one of the first, the first places that had a charter school that uh, was only taught in Hawaiian, only Olalo. And it was a revolutionary thing because you also had to think you had this very, this very static language that had been kind of kept alive only underground, so to speak, you know, and, and so it had to be artificially kind of fast forwarded because there were no, there were no words for car and computer and internet and things like that. Right. And so I can't imagine the undertaking that what, but I was, I mean, it was just kind of happening in my backyard and all of a sudden, I mean, and so actually one of those schools, it's in Keokaha 
And now when I fly back, like a, a trip or two ago, there were two airline stewards and they were speaking to each other just very casually in Olelo, which I just, it's amazing to me the, the how quick just a couple of generations, now all of my nieces and nephews, you know, are, are so far ahead of anything that me or my cousins or my generation had access to and awareness of, you know, because from language went, now it's cultural ways. And now they spend time, a much more a part of their, their curriculum is being outside and being a part of Hawaii not just as a, a as as like a homogenous people, but as almost subjects of this the kingdom of you know multiple ethnicities coming together to just perpetuate the ways of this kingdom or these people, this land, you know. Well, one of the things that I couldn't help but notice about your book is its lack of a glossary, its lack of any footnotes, its lack of any hand-holding when it comes to olalu and certain words in Hawaiian uh, pronunciations, any of that. As a reader, you are just immersed. And at first, I remember I, I felt like a little bit destabilized. I was like, okay, where am I? What is this? And then it sort of teaches you. You have to sort of catch up. And that's what you're asking of the reader. You're not offering any of that stuff and kind of othering the Hawaiian culture and, and the language. Yeah. And that was twofold. I mean, I grew up wishing I had a book that kind of echoed or, or reflected my world and the challenges of it and, and the navigating of certain things, but I didn't. And, you know, and so part of that was of, I, it, I didn't want any explanations other than what was absolutely necessary because the more you explain, the less it becomes for a, a, a group or a place instead of it, it becomes more of a this is about Hilo it's not for Hilo you know and so you have a lot of narrated guides you know uh, to help you experience Hawaii in that way and this I wanted to present it to you I mean and it, it prompted many a discussion you know it certainly did um, on every level of of the publishing process of this but part of why we all stuck to what we did was I wanted to give you that sense of, and, and for you to never forget that you have arrived in a different country. And if, if it was a made up country, you would never forget it, but it is a place that you think, you know, majority of people think they know what Hawaii is. And so this was a, this was a, no, you're going to have to code switch here and we're, I'm going to take you to this different place and you, you're not being given a guide. You're not being given a tour guide. You are being given the privilege of just kind of going into my living room and observing, you know, and it's same like when I traveled or we lived abroad, we lived in Eastern Europe and I would sit in a room and everybody would just be talking and, and just going about their day. And I knew nothing. I could pick up this word or that word. And all my other senses had to be tuned in. Body language, inflection, what was really kind of being communicated here. And, and that's what I tried to do a little bit of it by not giving you that glossary or, or othering the pigeon or explaining it within you know sentences and, and such. So why were you in Eastern Europe? Oh, that's another story. Yeah. I, my, my second husband, I, I guess identity and belonging has always been a thing because my second husband was a survivor of the, um, 
the breakup of Yugoslavia. So he's half Muslim, half Serb, grew up in Yugoslavia, in Sarajevo. And so I was kind of driven to be there in Bosnia and in Serbia and trying to unpack the issue of identity and blood, you know, from a totally different, but also very weirdly parallel kind of situation. This is a theme in your life, it seems like. (laughs) It is definitely my theme. Yep. Okay. Well, another thing that I noticed and really admired about your novel is how it works structurally. You did not give yourself an easy task here. I think anytime you're working intergenerationally, anytime you're incorporating elements of history and cosmology, as we've discussed, anytime you're dealing with a, a large cast of characters, you run the risk of losing the reader or things becoming convoluted or hard to follow. And yet I never felt like that reading this book. It's, it's built well. I have to imagine that took a lot of labor. Like that was. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that. I, I, you know, when I, the very, very first draft, it was, it was very simple, at least for me, it was very messy, you know, but it was, it was simply a, a story of this family and they were having these conversations about, you know, internally that what was going to happen from generation to generation and what was going to be passed down and what couldn't be, but people didn't understand it. You know, I, I mean, the mainstream reader, same like me, isn't taught Hawaiian history, not in depth. And so I found myself kind of almost working my way out where it was like, oh, I have to actually give you context for what they're fighting about and what the stakes, even what the stakes are within this family. I can't assume that you know that. This is not common enough knowledge. Um, you know, like if I was doing it in some other place where we were we were very familiar with the occupation of it or the, or the genocide of this or that or, or some other kind of injustice of history, I wouldn't. I could write just within there and I wouldn't have to explain to you the anger or the sadness or the frustration or any of those things. And so I very much had to understand it for myself to make sure I was getting it right. But then found myself saying, well, it adds so much more. If you see the generational patterns, if you see how the thoughts have evolved and the opinions and the awareness of certain things and the priorities have changed over the generations and the decades in, you know, in recent Hawaiian history. And so I think if I had tried to embark on this novel with how it is now, I would have completely felt intimidated and not able to do it. But in order to really make sure I was doing justice to each of the Napaka women, I had to know and understand where they were coming from. And, and then I just felt like, well, then my reader needs to know that too. You know, as, as much as I didn't want to write a missioner type, just a bunch of history in it. I just felt like it was integral, integral to the story. And the Napaka is the family name of, of Laka and Hii and uh, what's the, the mother's name? Ulali, Ulali. yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> Trying to keep Napaka, track of everybody. Yeah. Uh, Nalpaka is actually a flower, and it's, there's two Nalpaka plants. One is a mountain Nalpaka, and one is a um, a beach Nalpaka. And, and so they each look like half of a flower. And so if you bring the two together, they create like an entire blossom. And, and there's a whole mythology and a story of why and, you know, star-crossed lovers and everything like that about why we have 
these nalpaca. Um, but I had given them this name before I made that connection of, of just kind of this unrequited uh, disconnect, you know. And then, of course, I'm as these things happen, I'm sure, you know, a lot of writers can say the weirdness of when you're writing something and everything is right in front of your eyes. I'm writing this in my childhood room because I was going back and forth to Hawaii a lot to make sure I had all the things. And I've had a painting, a woodblock painting, um, printing uh, for since high school that my mom gave me that I've kind of tugged along everywhere with me. And it on the bottom, it said... Uh, Oh, I forget her first name, but she's a Nalpaka. <laughs> you know, I think it's actually Laka Nalpaka. I might be, I may be mistaken, but it was just a, okay, you know, how are the Nalpakas with me now? It was, it was quite a moment of realization. Yeah, I feel like that. Yeah, I hear stories like that from people I talk with on this show. I've had experiences like this as a writer that are, it's just like moments of synchronicity. Yeah. And that, that kind of gives you the chills, this, uh, these what two half flowers and that fits beautifully into what you're telling here. Right. Thank I mean, it you. couldn't, yeah. it almost couldn't be better. And, uh, this is very much a story about generations. I think it's an, especially a story about generations of women and the difficult, you know, the difficult relationships between mothers and daughters, but also the loving relationships, how like the love is there, however much it may be. It's fierce. Yeah. Strained. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And there's a lot of wisdom and there's a, I love, you know, these characters in this book are tough stuff and uh, strong-willed and have a lot of grit. And I'm thinking of the work that Ulali and Laka do trying to protect, you know, generations of their family, their land, uh, Hawaii in general, um, you know, these are not shrinking violets to make another no. flower reference. Yeah. And, <laughs> and Hulali's generation is, you know, it was my grandparents' generation and that, and that generation, they didn't talk much. They didn't tell you stories or give you a lot of hugs and honies and, and stuff, you know, and it was just, you do this and don't ask why don't ask questions, you know? And so even writing her as this mix of all these memories and, and these people that I knew or, or, or cultural figureheads, uh, you know, or public people, it was just, I was scared to write her. And so my editors would go back and they're like, can we have a little bit more Hulali? And I'm like, but she might not want me to do that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Like she, ter I mean, because it's, it is very real. Even, you know, some of the research entailed me going back and saying, okay, mom, you know, what did you prefer to, you know, hit me with? Was it the broom or the stick? And she, oh, no, 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 the broom's too much, you know, and, and a, you know, a brush would break, but you do the, I mean, it was just, it was almost kind of um, funny to see how, how, how much things can change over not very long of a period of time. Yeah. You know, it's so funny. I was just thinking about this like a couple of days ago, but I grew up in a time when spanking kids still happened. Not much, but it was, I think it was dwindling even when I was a child, but it was still there. In my junior high school, there was corporal punishment. I mean, it didn't happen very often, but like the principal had a wooden paddle and like would, you know, theoretically be able to paddle kids who were misbehaving. And now I reflect on my time as a parent. I have two kids and I got to say, 
like they misbehave like any kids and you have to correct them sometimes. But I've never once felt like, wow, I really could use a paddle or, you know, like, well, like you, it's, it's totally yeah. unnecessary, totally it unnecessary to hit a child. To, to see how much, like even writing it, some of the editors go, oh my gosh. And I had so normalized and it wasn't necessarily abuse. It was just part of, you know, like we, the kids would be, dro- we'd be dropped off at school and then the te- the parents would call from the, you know, the car to the teacher, hey, they're acting up give them a slap, you know, yeah. you have my permission. It was, it, 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 I hate, I'm not minimizing it, but it, it, it didn't feel like a big thing growing up in it, you know? And, and so my children, you know, they're just like, wow, Island, Mo-, you know, because I'm to them, I'm much harsher than their, their LA friends, mothers and stuff, you know, cause I'll be like, what? It's right down the road. You walk, you know? And so they're like, island moms, they're so much harder than, you know, they're not the (laughs) helicopter parent or they are, but in a very different way, you know? Well, I was thinking, you know, it made me think reading Boudou Lali. I was like, man, you know, maybe I'm being too gentle. Like I, (laughs) I hug my, I hug my kids every day. I'm like, I love you. I'm proud of you. That's all I ever say to them. I'm like, maybe I'm ruining them. Maybe I need to toughen up. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and that was very much a sentiment, you know, my mom, I mean, it was like, you got to build your calluses. The world is tough, you know? And, and honestly, I don't know how much of that was because there, my family is still primarily dominated by women, you know, and there aren't a lot of sons born into it or, and, you know, and men around, but but yeah, it was, it was very much, it's still to a certain extent of like, you don't call to your ch- children. You're not doing them any favors, you know? All right. You got to toughen up. <laughs> it's tough. Gotta, yeah. My kids have no idea what's about to hit them when I, Survival and I, don't, of the fittest, I don't mean yeah. that literally. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I want to talk about the path to publication, um, because, you know, along with the, the actual writing of the book, it was arduous to get this thing into print and into this lovely hardcover we should say it's a beautiful <laughs> thank book you. thank you yeah, very they, much. they did a thank nice you. job on the design and i want to i want to just hear you kind of tell the story the saga of the saga of the, the saga the behind the saga uh, yeah yeah like be, well i think it's useful people out there they only see the book on the shelves in the bookstore they often don't realize what it took to get it there and what happened to you and to this book along the way is more common than maybe we like to think, or maybe more common than it should be, but it sold. And then it was, I think they call it orphaned, right? Mm -hmm. So just give people kind of an overview of that part of it. And I guess that was the only reason I really even wanted to acknowledge that that was part of the story was because there has been a call for diversity in books and, and voices and authors and, and, um, and this journey kind of exemplified the challenges of what exactly that entails of change, right? It's not just about getting uh, diverse authors. It's about how it's edited and how it's received in a house and how it's prioritized and all of these things. So yes, it, thankfully I had an agent from day one who loved it, believed in it, believed in me, saw the vision of it. And she was so excited about finding it that in the process, while we were getting it ready to submit out, which we were editing it and and polishing it up, she was talking to all the people she knows, you know, of like this, I can't wait, you know, you're going to be so thrilled. So she had built 
up such an organic excitement for it that by the time we we took it out, there was enough interest in it to to garner an auction. And when speaking to a variety of different editors, they would ask me kind of what my priority was. And I said, well, my biggest priority was it was to to assign value to my small little town that so get is so overlooked, even within Hawaii. When I say where I'm from, they're like, Honolulu. And I said, no, not Honolulu. And they go, oh, Oahu. And I go, no, still no, you know? Yeah. And, um, and, and, and I, let me, I, I apologize. I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I think okay. for people listening, you're from Hilo. Hilo is on the big island. It is on the big island. So when people say, well, what island is that? It does get confusing because it's Hawaii Island right. of the Hawaiian islands. And then, and I'll say the big one and they say, oh, Oahu, because Oahu has the capital. But Oahu is actually very, very small, you know, geographically. And and so I wanted to to my priority was treat this like a mainstream book, treat this with value, you know. And so the editor who acquired it, very, very excited, you know, and I was blown away by their plans for it and everything. And a few months later, she left um, and it was i guess discussed in house of the reassigning when when a when a book is orphaned you know the I, I think the process of of uh assigning it to a different editor varies among you know imprints and publishing houses but i i believe there was a discussion and it was assigned to an editor and that's hard to begin with because when you are in the process of getting a book acquired, you and your editor, it's same like you and your agent when you meet, you're not just agreeing, they're not just agreeing to, to, to represent you. They're agreeing, we have a common goal here. We have a common vision for this and we're working towards that same thing. And when it's orphaned, I think you lose that, right? I didn't have that talk with this editor to say, what do you think the vision of this is going to be? And I mean, we ended up having a conversation, but not in the, you know, before it's acquired kind of early stage. And she inherited this. So I can only imagine how challenging that was, but she didn't know all the the cultural context of me and, and everything this book represented to me and to where I'm from. And, and then it passed through a few more hands because there were so many varying kind of ideas of where this book could go or should go. And, and ultimately, you know, it wasn't, we never found that right place of, of, of co-existence of being happy with, um, with the end goal. And, you know, and, and thankfully we still had, I mean, years passed, you know, of, of this very agonizing back and forth, especially during COVID where you're feeling isolated already. And so you can't have these face-to-face conversations. You're doing it very awkwardly over zoom or phone calls and, and you're worried about the end of the world, you know? And so when we finally moved, it was to uh, an editor who loved it from day one. She was one of the original editors that had been interested in it. And we really kind of had to lay it all out of where we're going to go with this and be very intentional with what we're going to include and what we're not going to include and why. And everything has to kind of have a reason. I mean, because 
and I'll give you, it seems like an arbitrary one, but you know, sometimes, especially when you get down to the copy editing of something, copy editors will just change a sentence. It's, it's not, they was looking out the window. They were looking out the window. Right. And it seems like an easy, you know, just a line edit, but that changes everything musically to me. And that's not pigeon. That's not what I'm saying. And so we had to kind of almost create a, a rule, like an etiquette rule of this. I meant that here. And there was one sentence that got taken out by various, in various stages that I'd sneak it back in and got taken out. And it was, um, Eddie would go. It was, it, and it means nothing to most people. Right. But to people in Hawaii, it means a whole lot. It, it's the it, surfer, right? Eddie Aikau and Eddie would go like if you're if if you're kind of being put in the same grouping as like, oh, you're like, you know, like that. It just means that you are going to rush into something you're I mean, and I don't mean in a hasty way. I mean, you're going to face the unfaceable with courage and with honor um, and for your people, you're going to do these really hard things. And, and so it means a lot, but I'm not going to explain all of that to you. And my argument for keeping it in, because people would say, well, it doesn't, if it doesn't mean anything, we can scratch it to the story. And I said, well, to the people that would know what that means, having it in there means a exponential amount more than not having it in there. You know, I'd rather you not understand the reference than not have it in there at all, because it means so much to have these things that were a part of your world, the sayings and the mannerisms and certain kind of compliments and things like that. To see that reflected in literary form, I don't think I ever had. And it it meant a lot to me when I'd have one, like when the movie, The Descendants came out, the fact that the director made sure that whenever somebody walked in a door, they took their shoes off first. You can't believe what a big deal that felt like was, oh my God, they, they understood, they paid attention to that. So it's not a big deal to, to a, a mainstream, you know, watcher of this movie because they're just watching and they're paying attention to the story. But to somebody from Hawaii, it's like, oh, okay. They know what they're talking about. It was a little, it was another level of validation, you know. It's the Alexander Payne movie with George Clooney? Yes. Okay. Okay. And I, you know, I got to say, hearing you say all of this and and talk about the process of leaving one editor in one house and moving to another always requires buy-in and a kind of shared understanding of the vision of the project for things to work out, especially so for a book like this, right? I mean- and and that I mean part of that was for me when I was in order to defend all these things I had to go back right I had to go talk to my kumu I had to go back to the community leaders who were involved in those suits I had to talk to the woman who wrote the apology bill you know like I I had to make sure I was defending the thing the right things for the right reasons and it wasn't just artistic you know me just saying no I I know more than you and I'm gonna I'm gonna push my weight it was more of a like okay, I got to get this right. And I'm going to ask you to trust me. But before I ask you to trust me, I got to go do my cultural homework and go home. So I went back many times to do that. And, and that was scary. And, you know, and but illuminating. And, and then yeah, we did have to, it really kind of be very intentional, even just with the, the, 
publishing of it, you know, I, I went home first. I brought, before it was available publicly, I brought it home into Hilo and it needed to be blessed in Kaukaha by the right people and, and, and to have it start there and be offered to Kaukaha and to Hilo because that's what ultimately what it is. It is my offering to my home, you know? And so there's no, I didn't, there wasn't any really kind of cultural rule book that I could follow for the protocol of how to launch a book like this or, and not that I know of anyway. And so it was just kind of feeling my way in the dark and trying my hardest to remember all that I've been taught and all of uh, what I know of my home and, and having this add to the efforts to make our home a, a vibrant, viable place that is honored and respected and understood, not just by outsiders, but like by my children. What is my responsibility to my children, both of them, to perpetuate the stories of my family and our ways and our traditions? If I have an issue with, with all of that and decided to come to California and never talk about Hawaii ever again, which at a certain point in my life I, I wanted to do, that means it the buck stops with me, right? The stories and the the traditions and and the things of my family, and so hula and and that's just it's the same kind of idea, just on a much larger scale with a lot more at stake, you know. What do you mean by blessed? You take the book to Hilo or Hilo and and people. You have a ceremony, like what? <laughs> we did have a little ceremony. We did. I mean, um, a long time ago when I was first started trying to write about Hawaii, I. I, it kept not working. Part of that was because I was still learning how to write, but somebody, I probably my mom said, you know, well, maybe it's because you haven't asked permission. You know, she was always, when I was a kid, always defaulted to like, oh, your car died. Well, did you go and give your respects to Pele? Cause you were driving past the crater or, oh, you're not feeling well. Oh, well, let's go up to the crater. Let's talk to Pele. Let's, you know, let's, let's give her, you know, some, some ho'okupu. And, um, like what would how would we respect Pele in this situation and 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 how are we you know acknowledging her presence during this you know c- ceremony or or happening anything like that there was always that in the background and so with this you know have I didn't really know what that looks like I asked an aunt of mine she gave me some chance and some a certain protocol to follow and then I printed out I brought some offerings for Pele and I printed out a bunch of my writing and I put it in a backpack and I, I went down into the crater and I kind of tried to create my own ceremony of, of offering my intentions and myself. And, and, and then it just kind of went from there every step of the way of, of talking to community leaders. And so the person that ultimately did, I guess, quote unquote, the blessing, and it was more of a blessing for my intentions. And the book was, or is a somebody who stories are interwoven within this, who is very active in um, the fight to keep Hawaii County and the state and all of the, the governing agencies accountable for what they're doing and their decisions that they continue to make and that continue to affect all of the communities of Hawaii. And yeah, and all I could do is kind of hope that those things were if they weren't enough, then at least people would know that I've been 
my intentions were there, you know, that I've been trying every step to, to continue to make this not about me wanting to be an author. It was more about a book from Hawaii being offered up to the world as, as just a source of insight, hopefully, and, and my own kind of Ike, my own knowledge. So how has the book been received in Hilo? In Hilo, I mean, in that it's been amazing because, you know, um, a lot of people had, of course, it's a small town, you know, so everybody heard about it and speculated for a long time. And some people read early drafts and they're like, oh, you are, ins-, you know, no, <laughs> not good, you know. And so it, those criticisms and those those things helped guide me too, you know, because there were a lot of perspectives that I, I was not I didn't have. But since the publication, it has actually been overwhelmingly amazing. I have people I grew up with reaching out and finding me and just saying, thank you for capturing my world. Thank you for capturing my experience here. And and other people that have lived in Hawaii for generations and been part of it for, you know, hundreds of years, but not native Hawaiian and saying thank you for kind of even just like the weirdness of what that experience is you know, for putting that on paper. And then I've had tourists and and visitors, you know, reach out and find me and say, you know, just this put a whole different perspective and feeling and depth into our trip or our, our, what we deem our relationship with this place that we love to come on vacations or whatever, you know, as far as other, the other wider reception, I know some people, you know, I think maybe would question my, I guess, me being the one to write this. And so all I can kind of do is have full disclosure and maybe put that out more of, of who I am. You know, I never meant to deceive anybody or anything about that. This was very much to me a he story, but overall, you know, so far it's, it's been, more than I could have hoped. People are talking about blood quantums and people are talking about things that, yeah, you know, for so long, I've been talking about these these subjects and and most people would just shake their head and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, so I've, I've very much appreciated that all of a sudden people are like, oh, Hawaii is not just a destination. It's, it's a place, you know? Right. Well, I got to say from personal experience that I have particular affection for the big island. I love the island of Hawaii. I love it. I had a great time there years ago. I think my wife and I were dating at that point. So we were young. <laughs> I remember we extended our trip a few days. We had a great time. It's so beautiful. And it's so such a varied landscape for a relatively small chunk oh, of land. I mean, I, I'm partial to it. <laughs> but I think of the, what is it, 13 climate zones of the world, the island has 11 something like that, you know, and I, and, and I guess that was what I tried to also capture in the we is that what people that have never come to Hawaii don't realize is that Hawaii isn't beloved around the world because it's pretty. There are a lot of pretty places, you know, with warm waters and palm trees. It has an energy. The land itself has an energy. It's alive. And that has a voice too. And so that was part of what I tried to encompass with that we of like, no, you feel the water here. You, you, you're kind of on your toes, you know, you feel like, am I doing something? Should I be right there? There's, there's a lot of um, different things at play 
on that island than just, you know, uh, just a relaxing kind of trip golfing or something, you know? Right. It's magical. It's beautiful. And, you know, for the rest of us, for people who are not native Hawaiian, for people who don't have deep family roots there and family history there, this question did occur to me. It's like, how is it best done to be a traveler visiting a place like Hawaii? Like it made, it gave me pause. Like, should I stay in a hotel? Is it better to do an Airbnb? <laughs> like, I'm not going to go to a Lua, I'll tell you that ever, unless it's like local, but no local's going to invite me to a Lua, <laughs> you know, like, unless I really get to know them, but. Unless you just like, read hula. Then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to carry it around be like, yeah. please, can I, or just like, you know, I want some auntie to kind of take me in and. and feed me but you know well, and that was part of you know my, my i have family in california that would say like when are you going back to the islands because i want to go with you and i'd say go you know you know all my family there and they go no no it's not the same i want to go to your hawaii you know and and so that was part of why i wrote it the way i wrote it but i would say for visitors you know i don't have i'm not the the tourist police. I, I have been to some places that I found very inspiring. There was a park that I happened upon in Palm Springs of all places. You know, Palm Springs is just desert. And then all of a sudden there's like water and it, it's like this, you know, little oasis of, of all these different beautiful things and lush. And, but when you drive into it, there's a big sign that says the tribe that this land belongs to and that they still govern over it and the park rangers who are very visible are members of this tribe and you you pay money to contribute to the upkeep and the protection of these things and even that i mean i would be sensitive to it anyway coming from where i'm from but reading that and you have to stop at the gate and read that first it's a simple three minutes of difference between just paying your parking and and going into a park it does change your experience it makes you step lighter, you know, and, and a kind of take it in and with a different kind of appreciation than just, oh, did I get that right selfie that I can, you know, post on Instagram or whatever. And so I've seen things like that where I've seen it done. I've seen tourism done better in a slightly more sustainable way. And I know people now are proposing different things, you know, um, emphasizing education in 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 tourism where people are, you know, kind of made aware that they're stepping into a different culture. They're stepping into a different place. It's not simply in your backyard to play with, you know? Um, and, and other than that, I mean, that was my only goal with this, you know, it was more of a, like, if I can just get you that slight paradigm shift of destination versus place, and which one are you seeing Hawaii as? It's a nuance, but it I think it does make all the difference, you know. No, totally. And I think like it's complicated, I think, too, or at least it seems complicated from the perspective of Native Hawaiians and people who go back generations there, this relationship between tourism and wanting to maintain the integrity of their home. Because tourist the tourist economy is so vital. It's the lifeblood of, of Hawaii, right? Or at least one of the major lifebloods. Well, bloods. that's what, I mean, that's a big, that's a whole other book. Uh, you know, I, I do have a friend who who wrote, 
she's she's from you know from the mainland and she wrote a a book of short uh, essays about her relationship and her love her li- lifelong love of hawaii but understanding that she would never be an out you know an insider uh, and what that looked like so she dissected that and and in one of those stories she tried to dig a little deeper kind of go journalist on on that that well-touted fact that tourism is Hawaii's bread and butter. It's our main economy. I know for myself that the only jobs that were available to locals most of the time were service. So you're getting paid minimum wage, if that. You know, I made good money dancing, but that was very, very part-time. And you can only do that for so long. Nobody wants to see me in my forties dancing in a coconut bra, you know, (laughs) sorry, you know, but there isn't a lot of evidence except what the whole, the hotel industry tells us of exactly how it benefits Hawaii. When a hotel is built in a town it raises the cost of living in the surrounding area so much that most locals have to move <laughs> because even if they got a job at said hotel that the pay would not would not be commensurate with how much it would cost to live there and so automatically you have you have something that upends it and are they paying state taxes probably are they paying enough to trickle down in some way, shape, or form to actual Hawaiian communities. I haven't seen what that looks like, you know, and, and she wasn't able to really go in depth. She got a lot of closed doors and a lot of unanswered, you know, emails, I think, and, and was kind of left saying, I don't know, the jury's out as far as what exactly that means that Hawaii tourism is, is you know the the thing that keeps Hawaii alive. When tourism stopped, you know during COVID during quarantine, everybody that I knew were they were very happy. You know, see, I thought about that. I thought about oh. that. I was like, they must have loved it. They must oh, have loved it. They had the island grew back. There were birds that people thought were extinct that they saw. You know, and, but also there were still jobs. They have they have ag. They have an industry there that that isn't all catered to serving your drinks, you know? See, this makes me, I mean, makes me not want to go. And and I mean, not, not (laughs) because I don't want, not because I don't want to go, but because I just feel like they're like, Howley's get out of here basically. And I get it. Like, I don't want to be a part of the problem is the point. And I think, you know, I think it's become, I mean, the numbers are so staggering. So it's not necessarily that everybody in Hawaii wants every tourist to leave, you know, it it just, that's it. Blanket, hard stop. I think a lot of it is a built up frustration of the the numbers that continue to quadruple and, and just build on themselves. And a lot of the, a lot of people have spoiled it for the rest of the people that come respectfully and wanting to just appreciate and know more about the culture and more about the islands. You have some people that come very, ignorant and very entitled and and very disrespectful not just to individuals but to the entire culture as a whole you know and and it's heartbreaking and then it just makes everyone just say okay no this is not this is not acceptable this is not okay you know and part of it was was the presentation that 
hula is not something, it's something to just be enjoyed. And, and our heao and our, you know, our museums and everything, they're just something that we can, they're kind of a novelty item to, to, you know, they're at our pleasure. And so I think it, it's not necessarily just this blanket, you know, um, disapproval, and I know that over time, the emphasis and priority has changed to let's educate people and let like that's how a culture and a language and and everything continues to grow. Right. That it, it, it is a living thing that builds upon itself. It's not something to be kept under glass in a museum. And Hawaii is not that it's still a living, breathing thing and, and, uh, very much still to me, a kingdom, you know, that, um, that it's figuring out its way to survive like a lot of cultures and a lot of different people in, in a lot of different ways. But, you know, I think there's a time and a place for tourism and tourists and people to appreciate and, and add something to it. I just don't think we're, we're, we figured out exactly what that looks like yet. Well, the thing that I keep thinking of as I listen to you is that there would seem to be a market for like Hawaiian owned uh, hotels or resorts that like offer to people wanting to travel there an experience that honors all the things that you're talking about. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, this could be yeah. pie in the sky, but like, that's what I'm thinking. Like, where, where's the place to go stay where like you get to learn and people sort of teach you a little bit about the history and you get to immerse yourself in it in a way that goes beyond mere consumption. And I guess that go because of the price of, of land there, even just that simple thought of those hotels, that land was stolen. Most of those hotels were built through, you know, very shifty, you know, not so um, transparent ways of, of doing that. And now it's so insurmountable <laughs> to try to even conceive of that. I know that the emphasis has been by local, you know, don't just go to Walmart and get that thing from, you know, the Philippines or wherever it's from, like shop local. If you're going to come here at the very least, do that homework. Right. And, and I know that uh, the tourism authority has been contemplating how to more integrate listing places where you can go and have cultural experiences, you know, and participate in certain things with local nonprofits and different organizations and, and education groups and, and so forth, you know, to, to make your experience one that also helps Hawaii, you know, mm. go work in the field a little bit, go work in the Lo'i or something, you know. Um, but as far as, you know, it like even just saying, oh, well, locals should have this hotel and, and we should support that. Well, those, those commercial places the odds now of of playing into that game are so skewed against locals that it goes it goes all the way back to who owns the land and who has a right to say where it goes you know the government still and by the government i mean america you know the state and and federal still decide even with quote unquote hawaiian homelands they still decide if they're going to lease it to walmart or, you know, or, or if they're going to turn it into a development for Hawaiians. And we see that now with the TMT, I'm not sure, um, the fight over the Mauna on the Big Island as well. And the only reason that's not a thing right now is because when COVID happened, 
the protest camps and everything um, kind of had to Wait, disband. What but is there this? was a so on so the Big Island also happens to be one of the best places to study stars, right? Um, we have a very good a low, I think, uh, light pollution, and then also we have Mauna Kea, which is one of the best in the world to to have your telescope. Problem is we have multiple telescopes and they've been uh, detrimental to the environment there. And there's so many different things about what's wrong with all that is already there, but a proposed telescope, very well funded, which is larger than all of the other telescopes combined. It's 30 meters. They have the spot picked out and it's basically the most culturally sensitive spot you know, it, and it's virgin ground. And the minute you doze on it and build in it, we can never recover that, you know, and it's absolutely sacred. And so the state, of course, gave a go ahead. UH, the university system there said, well, we 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 have a lease for this land that was given to us by, I don't know, the military or whatever. So we're going to do this project. And the telescope uh, development was kind of given the green light, but it's a lot of big equipment, right? And so they were trying to bring trucks and to go up to the Mauna. And the one thing that people could do, there was a rally cry and everybody blocked the road and lived there. And it turned into this amazingly beautiful thing. This was 2019, I believe. I mean, I would just, it was just a beautiful, it was people coming from all over the world to appreciate it. And, and they were giving classes and, and dancing hula every day. And I mean, and the elements up there are fierce. It's there's snow, it's high elevation, you get sick. So them living up there just was no easy feat. And sadly, you know, the governor sent police, sent people to, to, you know, kind of tear everything apart all down and, we're still fighting it. People are still fighting it and people are still kind of watching the road to make sure that they're not going to pull a, you know, it's easier to say sorry than for ask for permission, you know, ask for forgiveness, not permission type of thing. So these, all these things are happening in real time, you know, and it all goes back to, it all kind of sometimes leads you back to the the land. And that, so that's why it, it had to, that's why Hula had to include all of that because it does originate from the coup, from these racist acts, from, you know, from the twenties and, and it has continued, it is perpetuated and, and history, you, you said earlier that the structure of it is not, was not easy. It wasn't. And, and it's cyclical, you know, and part of that was to show the, the repetitiveness, sadly, of certain things that when you don't analyze it or whether you don't know what's going on it just perpetuates and that was to me the scariest thing when i was doing my research all the players that i was writing about like they're corrupt and they're doing these nefarious things they're still there <laughs> and those things are still happening and the structure is almost identical to what it was you know because it's it the, the fox is you know kind of guarding the hen house well i will recommend to anyone who is about to go on their honeymoon in Hawaii to read your novel. Anybody who's planning to travel there would be well served to read Hula because, you know, as somebody who has been um, more than once to the islands, it definitely changed my perspective for the better and made it completely new. I'll never see it the same after reading this book. And that's to your credit. Thank and you. I commend you for enduring all that you had to endure to get this book 
into the world. And I always ask people, this is the, the cruel question at the end, if they're working on anything else, <laughs> uh, yeah. is there another book? I mean, this feels like such an undertaking and such a life's work, but there might be more, or is there something else cooking? Well, you know, the funny thing was I was writing for about a decade, you know, so this is the overnight success that happened, you know, over the course of a decade that I've done so much research on on different things, different parts of history that I don't I don't want to box myself in as like a historical fiction writer because I'm not a historian, but I just find there's certain um, parts of things that have happened that that aren't talked about and the blanks aren't filled in. And so to connect certain dots, I'm going to be vague because I don't know exactly where this book is going. But to answer, yes, I have a lot of research that right now feels like a lot of different puzzle pieces that my charge is to kind of put them together and see what the bigger picture is. And so I worked back and that was kind of how I saw Hula where I didn't know what the ending was going to be. I didn't know exactly what this book was going to cover. You know, there were just a lot of puzzle pieces that I was just trying to piece one piece with the next one and the next one and go from there. And so I, sadly, I would like a break, but I think it's happening all over again. So there we go. I'm just going to let it go. I'm so sorry. To ride with it. Yeah, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but it, it will be a, a narrative that has to do with Hawaii. Um, yes. Yes. Okay. Well, I am grateful to you for your time. Thank you for taking, uh, you know what, an hour and change to talk with me about your book. Thank Congratulations you. and Thank best of so luck much. on the next one. Thank you so much. All right, everybody, there we have it. That was my conversation with Jasmine Iolani Hakes, author of the debut novel Hula, available now from Harper Via. You can find Jasmine on the internet. Her website is jasmineolani.com. Follow her on Instagram and Twitter read her novel. Again, it is called Hula. It is out there now. It is waiting for you. Go get your copy. If you had a good experience and you would like to support this show, support the work that I do, help keep this podcast going, just go to patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you would like to get an other people t-shirt, you can do so at the show's official website, otherppl.com. You can sign up for my newsletter at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. It is free. It's once a week. And if you have a couple of minutes, I would really appreciate it if you would rate this podcast wherever you listen to this podcast. If it's possible to write a quick review, write a quick review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can watch the podcast on YouTube. And don't forget to follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. If you would like to email me, if you have thoughts to share, the address is letters at otherppl.com. And if you would like to read my latest novel, it is out there now. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. It's a pretty personal book. So if you want to read it, you can. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So coming up next on the program, there will be a Friday flashback, another Friday flashback as yet undetermined. I will dig into the archives and share something with you, so stay tuned for that. And then on Sunday, I will be in conversation with Tanya James. She has a new novel out called Loot. It is available on Knopf, and I had a great time talking with Tanya James, so stay tuned.